Hello and welcome to another episode of A-Minder. My name is Ellen Rowe and I'll be your host today. This is part two of the Fluid Biomarkers episode, covering papers that showed up on PubMed in September 2020. If you haven't listened to part one yet or are new to the concept of biomarkers, these are things that we can measure to inform us on disease status, whether that's diagnosis, progression, or potential for treatment with a certain drug. Fluid biomarkers are molecules that you can measure in bodily fluids, like cerebral spinal fluid, CSF, or blood, and these are gaining a lot of attention because they're much cheaper to process than expensive imaging techniques. In part one, which was released a few weeks ago now, I covered new methods in fluid biomarker measurement and updates on the classic panel of AD biomarkers, which are amyloid, tau, and neurodegeneration markers like neurofilament light. Here, you'll hear about more exploratory work with new candidate biomarkers. These span lipids, proteins, and nucleic acids, and you'll also hear about some new findings related to the APOE4 genetic predisposition to late-onset AD. This will be a long but very interesting episode, so stay tuned. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. First off, I want to toss in a reminder that we include all published papers from peer-reviewed journals in our episodes, meaning that we don't make any judgment on the quality of the data in the papers that we summarize. As I'm sure many of you know, the peer review process isn't perfect, and some questionable findings can get through. Since we don't delve into the full papers to generate the content for the podcast, and we mostly pull from the abstracts, it's really up to you to make a judgment on the quality of the science we present. That being said, I do make an effort to point out sample size for nearly all of the papers, to at least give you some context of the study to help you make a quick judgment call while you listen along. Another metric I try to report where I can find it is the AUC value of the biomarker or model in the study. If you aren't really familiar with biomarker work, AUC stands for Area Under the Curve, and it's a summary number used to describe receiver operating characteristic, or ROC, curves. These curves plot the sensitivity against the specificity, or the type 1 error against the type 2 error if you're big into stats. Ultimately, this demonstrates how well a biomarker or model can discriminate between groups, like patients with AD and healthy controls. The best AUC value indicating a perfect discrimination would be 1. So hopefully these metrics, sample size and AUC, will help you critically evaluate the studies I present here. But like I said, you should dive into the full paper to make your final judgment call. On that note, we do offer free bibliographies along with our episodes, so you can easily find the papers that we talk about. These used to be timestamped, but we're shifting to numbered bibliographies, so you'll hear me numbering each paper as I make my way through the episode, so you can track each one down in our bibliography. You can find a link to it in the episode notes, or you can sign up to our mailing list to get access to them. Okay, so let's get into it. There are a hefty 27 papers in this episode, and I'll be starting off with ones focused on lipids, lipoproteins, and metabolites. So for the first paper of the episode, we have immunomodulatory sphingosine-1 phosphates as plasma biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease and vascular cognitive impairment. This is by first author Chua and last author Lai, published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. So sphingosine-1 phosphates, or S1Ps, are a group of signaling lipids that can be carried around by your good cholesterol particles, or HDL. They're known to regulate both the vascular system and immune system, making them highly relevant to AD, which involves both. 
These authors looked at how S1P levels in plasma performed as biomarkers for AD and vascular dementia. For measurement of major sphingosine-1 phosphate species and inflammatory cytokines, they used baseline blood samples from a longitudinal cohort of 80 individuals with normal cognition, 160 who had cognitive impairment but not dementia, and 113 with AD and 31 with vascular dementia. They found that one species of S1P, which was D161, was significantly lower in patients with vascular dementia compared to AD. They also found that the ratio of D181 to D161 was increased in all groups compared with the cognitively normal controls, and that this ratio correlated with inflammatory cytokine levels. In a parallel in vitro experiment using rat astrocytoma cell lines, they reinforced their clinical findings when they found that D181 S1P increased levels of inflammatory cytokine transcripts, while D161 seemed to buffer its effect. The authors concluded that D161 might be a useful diagnostic biomarker for vascular dementia, while the D181 to D161 ratio could shed light on chronic inflammation and cerebrovascular damage in all sorts of neurodegenerative diseases. The second paper today is called Plasma Isoprosenoids Assessment as Alzheimer's Disease Progression Biomarkers. This is by two Spanish authors, so excuse my pronunciation on these last names. The first author is Pena Bautista, and last author is Chafer Pericas, and this is published in the Journal of Neurochemistry. This was a small study with only 19 participants that looked at whether lipid peroxidation markers could inform on AD progression. The 19 participants in their study were diagnosed with early stages of AD and had plasma collected at baseline, then were re-evaluated two years later with another plasma collection. Lipid peroxidation markers were measured at both time points, and regression models were used to predict cognitive status. The authors found that analytes including dihomoisoprostanes and neuroprostanes increased over time, and concluded that these analytes may be useful as prognostic biomarkers for patients with AD, meaning it could reflect their disease trajectory. While there are considerable limitations to this study, identifying prognostic biomarkers for AD is an important mission and more work is needed in this area. Next is a much larger study looking at serum lipids, and it's called Association of Midlife Serum Lipid Levels with Late-Life Brain Volumes, the Atherosclerosis Risk in Communities Neurocognitive Study. This is the third paper of the episode by first author Moazami and last author Alonzo, and it's published in NeuroImage. You may have heard that heart health and brain health are closely related, and more and more evidence is emerging to support this. HDL and LDL, or your good and bad cholesterol levels, are talked about a lot in the context of heart disease, but are now gaining traction in neurodegenerative disease research as well. Since lipid levels midlife are known to be associated with cardiovascular disease later in life, these authors wanted to see if the same was true for brain volume. They used 1,872 participants from the Longitudinal Atherosclerosis Risk in Communities Neurocognitive Study, who had standard plasma levels measured at baseline, and MRI scans done to determine brain volume about 24 years later. They found that HDL cholesterol levels were not associated with brain volume, but they did find associations with LDL cholesterol and triglycerides. They found that higher LDL levels in midlife were associated with larger brain volume, and that higher triglyceride levels in midlife were associated with smaller brain volume later in life. However, they noted that this association was modified by age, 
and was driven by individuals who were over 53 years of age at baseline, which may mean that this association is more reflective of late midlife. Next, more on HDL and brain volume. The fourth paper is called Circulating Metabolites Are Associated with Brain Atrophy and White Matter Hyperintensities. This is by first author Deleuve and last author Van der Fleer, published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. In this study, the authors casted a wide net looking at 143 plasma-based metabolites in a cohort of 3,962 participants from three separate studies to see whether circulating metabolites could reflect MRI measures of brain atrophy and white matter hyperintensities. They found that higher levels of glucose were associated with both brain atrophy and white matter hyperintensities. They also found that lower levels of small HDL particles reflected by their cholesterol content, were associated with brain atrophy. Importantly to note here, the authors found that the relationship was specifically with small HDL particles, not total HDL particles, which reinforces the need to parse apart the heterogeneous group of HDL particles when looking for associations, as they have different functions. Overall, the authors hammer home the point that the circulating factors can influence brain and cerebrovascular health, and may be good targets as biomarkers and therapeutic avenues. Sticking with the good and bad cholesterol, the fifth paper is called Association of Serum Apolipoprotein B with Cerebrospinal Fluid Biomarkers of Alzheimer's Pathology. This is by first author Hu and last author Yu, published in Annals of Clinical and Translational Neurology. So while one way of measuring HDL and LDL is through their cholesterol content, which is what is routinely done in the clinic and what we saw in the last paper, another way is to measure the levels of proteins on them. This may actually be a more useful tool since we're learning that proteins drive the function of these good and bad cholesterol particles, and measuring total cholesterol from the two species is actually a pretty crude measure of them. So with this in mind, the main defining protein on HDL is apolipoprotein A1, or ApoA1, while the defining protein on LDL is apolipoprotein B, or ApoB. This group looked at how ApoA1, ApoB, and their ratio was associated with early changes in ADCSF biomarkers. Their cross-sectional study included 288 cognitively normal controls and 219 patients with subjective cognitive impairment. They found several associations in the study, with the most interesting being that lower levels of serum ApoB in all participants was associated with several ADCSF biomarkers, independent of ApoE genotype. Notably, the associations were more significant in the subjective cognitive decline group. The authors found no association between ApoA1 and CSF biomarkers, which follows the third paper of this episode that found no associations between HDL cholesterol and brain volume. There are many more associations to unpack in this paper, and I strongly suggest you dive into the data behind them, but overall these authors suggest that there may be protective associations of serum ApoB with CSF AD biomarkers, and that ApoB may play different roles in different stages of AD. The sixth paper of this episode is called A Panel of Blood Lipids Associated with Cognitive Performance, Brain Atrophy, and Alzheimer's Diagnosis, a Longitudinal Study of Elders Without Dementia. This is by first author Ma and last author Yu, published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. This is a data-heavy paper that used data from 128 cognitively healthy individuals and 246 patients with mild cognitive impairment from the ADNI cohort. They wanted to tease apart how lipid biomarkers are related to AD phenotypes. All data was already available for the cohort, 
And this group used a statistical method called least absolute shrinkage and selection operator, or the lasso method, of logistic regression to identify lipids that may be good AD biomarkers. They found that a model using 17 of the identified lipids gave an AUC of around 0.76 for distinguishing between patients with MCI and cognitively healthy controls. Using these 17 identified lipids, they calculated risk scores based on levels in each individual. The authors then used multivariable models to test for associations of the lipid risk scores with AD phenotypes, including amyloid and tau positivity, cognitive scores, and brain volume. They found that their lipid risk score was associated with the ADAS cognitive test, levels of tau and CSF, and cognitive diagnoses. With longitudinal data, they also found that higher lipid risk scores were associated with faster cognitive decline and brain atrophy. These results are very interesting and demonstrate the utility of lipid measures in diagnosing and predicting cognitive decline. For the seventh paper today, we have association of androgens and gonadotropins with amnesic mild cognitive impairment and probable Alzheimer's disease in Chinese elderly men. This is by first author Li and last author Tui, published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Here we're shifting into another class of lipids, hormones. There's a pretty good case that age-related hormone changes are tied to AD. This is true in both postmenopausal women and in older men as well. This group looked at how androgen decline, specifically, may interact with the APOE4 allele in amnesic mild cognitive impairment and in AD. Their study included men over 65 years old, 243 of which had normal cognition, 271 had amnesic cognitive impairment, and 62 had probable AD. The authors measured serum hormone levels through ELISA and found that free testosterone and dihydrotestosterone were lower in the amnesic MCI group than in controls, and even lower in the AD group. They also found an interaction between lower levels of these hormones with APOE4, which had a significant risk role in cognitive impairment. As a potential biomarker, they found that free testosterone had an AUC of 0.745 for predicting amnesic MCI. Interestingly, they also found that levels of follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone were significantly higher in the AD group specifically. These data reinforce the case for taking a closer look at hormone levels in the context of AD. Now onto a few more papers related to APOE4. First with our eighth paper of the episode, titled APOE4 carriers have a greater propensity to glycation and S-rage, which is further influenced by RAGE G82S polymorphism. This is by first author Dio and last author Fenech, published in Journal of Gerontology Series A, Biological Sciences and Medical Sciences. So proteins and lipids in serum can be glycated when they're exposed to excess glucose and reactive oxygen species, and this leads to the formation of species called advanced glycation end products. These are now an established risk factor for diabetes and are emerging as being involved in AD and cardiovascular disease as well. The RAGE receptor, which binds advanced glycation end products, regulates aspects of metabolism, inflammation, and cell survival, and has recently been found to be intertwined with many aspects of AD. Here, the authors wanted to test their specific hypothesis that APOE4 carriers may have higher advanced glycation end product levels and total soluble extracellular domain of the RAGE receptor, and that these biomarkers may be modified by a polymorphism in the RAGE gene. Their study included 172 cognitively normal individuals, 
32 of which were ApoE4 carriers. So supporting their hypothesis, they found that ApoE4 carriers had significantly higher levels of advanced glycation end products and the soluble extracellular domain of RAGE. They also found that individuals with the G82S mutation in the RAGE gene had lower levels of the soluble ECD of RAGE. The authors concluded that the increased levels of soluble RAGE ECD could be a defensive response against increased levels of advanced glycation end products in ApoE4 carriers, and that this response may be influenced by the RAGE G82S polymorphism. Next, we have more on advanced glycation end products in ApoE4 carriers from the same group. This is a paper called Shorter Telomere Length in Carriers of ApoE4 and High Plasma Concentration of Glucose, Glyoxyl, and Other Advanced Glycation End Products. This is the ninth paper of the episode by first author Dylan and last author Fenich, published again in Journal of Gerontology Series A, Biological Sciences and Medical Sciences. So here the same group looked at how telomere length may be impacted by the ApoE4 genotype and its resulting accumulation of advanced glycation end products in plasma. This study used the same sample as the previous study, which was 172 cognitively healthy individuals. They found that telomere length was significantly shorter in ApoE4 carriers, and that higher plasma glucose levels and higher levels of advanced glycation end products were associated with shorter telomere length, regardless of ApoE genotype. So moving away from ApoE now, we have the 10th paper of the episode called Sialic Acid Associated with Oxidative Stress and Total Antioxidant Capacity Expression Level as a Predictive Indicator in Moderate to Severe Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author Yadav and last author Srivastava, and it's published in Experimental Gerontology. So sialic acids are a family of sugars mainly found on cell membranes, and they're emerging as potentially important players in the AD pathology. Oxidative stress can lead to sialic acid coming off of membranes, which increases its concentration in plasma. Here, the authors wanted to see whether there was an association between sialic acid levels in plasma of AD patients and oxidative stress biomarkers as well as total antioxidant capacity in patients. They used plasma samples from 60 AD cases and 60 cognitively normal controls, and a series of immunoassays to measure different parameters of oxidative stress and antioxidant capacity. Overall, they found an association between increased levels of sialic acid and higher levels of reactive oxygen species. They also found that antioxidant parameter levels were significantly lower in the AD cases, and that protein carbonyl and lipid peroxidation were increased in AD cases versus controls. Further investigation with larger sample sizes should be done to evaluate the potential of these metabolites as biomarkers for features of the AD pathology. So more on serum metabolites, the 11th paper of the episode is called Abnormal Serum Bilirubin Albumin Concentrations in Dementia Patients with Amyloid Beta Deposition and the Benefit of Intravenous Albumin Infusion for Alzheimer's Disease Treatment. This is by first author Zong and last author Liu, published in Frontiers in Neuroscience. So I actually hadn't heard of bilirubin before seeing this paper. So as a preface, it's a yellow compound in the blood that breaks down heme after age or abnormal red blood cells are destroyed. If you've heard of jaundice, where your skin turns yellow, that's due to an excess of bilirubin that isn't being cleared by the liver. So this group previously found that bilirubin could induce a beta formation and deposition in animal models, and they hypothesized that lowering the concentration of free bilirubin that can cross the blood-brain barrier might be an effective AD therapy. So enter albumin. 
another superabundant protein in the blood, which can bind fats and proteins and prevent them from crossing the BBB when they're bound. And that's the basis of the study here. More albumin means less free bilirubin that can cross the BBB and have its negative effects in the amyloidogenic pathway. So the authors did three different studies in this paper. The first was a cross-sectional study looking at levels of bilirubin and albumin in about 400 patients with different kinds of dementia. The second was an in vitro study to look at the effects of free bilirubin on MN9D neuron-like cells. And the third was a small intervention study with 30 participants, where they infused AD patients with albumin as a treatment. In the cross-sectional study, they found that patients who had A-beta deposition had higher bilirubin concentrations in their blood and lower albumin concentrations. With the in vitro experiment, they found that bilirubin-induced injury was rescued with increased serum, which contains albumin, in the culture media. With the intervention study, they found that those who received albumin injections had significant improvements in cognitive measures. Check out the paper for more details on this super interesting study, but results look promising. Next up, we have a paper called Cerebrospinal Fluid and Serum D-Serine Concentrations are Unaltered Across the Whole Clinical Spectrum of Alzheimer's Disease. This is the 12th paper of the episode by first author Nuzo and last author Ucello, published in Biochemica e Biophysica Acta, Proteins and Proteomics. The D-serine in CSF was proposed as a potential new AD biomarker, since its levels may reflect dysfunctional activation of NMDA receptors. Here, the authors measured D-serine and D-aspartate, which is another modulator of the NMDA receptor, in both CSF and serum in a cohort of 107 AD patients at all stages of the disease and 59 cognitively healthy controls. They found no difference in serum or CSF levels of either analyte across the AD clinical spectrum or compared to cognitively normal healthy controls. And they also found no correlation with cognitive measures. They also did a post-mortem study measuring D-serine levels in AD and control cortex samples, but found no difference there as well. These data suggest that D-serine may not be a promising biomarker for AD. So capping off this first portion of the episode on lipids and metabolites, with the 13th paper, we have blood biomarkers indicate that the preclinical stages of Alzheimer's disease present overlapping molecular features. This is by first author D. Costanzo and last author Mata published in Scientific Reports. So this group did a really elegant study using NMR-based metabolomics to look for blood biomarker signatures that could be diagnostic and prognostic. They used a cohort with participants spanning all clinical stages of AD, 49 who were cognitively normal, 13 with subjective memory decline, 9 with mild cognitive impairment, and 8 with AD, and they separated this cohort into a training and validation cohort to test their models. Using multivariate analysis, they found a panel of significant metabolites that could predict each diagnosis in the validation cohort with AUC values between 0.88 and 0.99. The authors did note, however, that the lower values of sensitivity and specificity were for the subjective memory decline and mild cognitive impairment groups, which follows with the fact that these conditions can have many distinct underlying causes. Importantly, the study shows that there doesn't seem to be a linear molecular evolution of the pathology due to the noise in these intermediate stages. Of course, this conclusion is limited by the cross-sectional nature of the study, and for robust conclusions, it should be done in a longitudinal setting, but there's tons of really interesting NMR data to unpack in this paper, and you should definitely check it out. 
So that brings us just about halfway through this episode, so we'll take a break here. After the break, I have more on inflammation markers, other protein candidates, and nucleic acids as biomarkers. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with me on this long journey to catch up on the newest biomarker work in AD research. First up now, I have a few papers related to inflammation. For the 14th paper of this episode, we have Peripheral Immunophenotype in Dementia with Lewy Bodies and Alzheimer's Disease, an Observational Clinical Study. This is by first author Emin and last author Holmes, published in Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry. By now, I think we're all familiar with the fact that inflammation plays a critical role in neurodegenerative diseases. A lot of work has been done to characterize peripheral inflammation in AD, but this group wanted to compare it to dementia with Lewy bodies, which is much less characterized. To do this, they used 31 patients with dementia with Lewy bodies, 31 with AD, and 31 healthy elderly controls. Using blood from these patients, they quantified T and B cell subsets using flow cytometry and serum cytokine concentrations using immunoassays. They found that there were fewer helper T cells and lower activation of B cells in dementia with Lewy bodies compared to AD. They also found that IL-1 beta was more frequently detected in dementia with Lewy body patients, and IL-6 was increased compared to controls. Check out the paper for more details. But ultimately, these data suggest that peripheral inflammation is considerably different in dementia with Lewy bodies compared to AD, and that immune-based biomarkers may be useful for diagnosing dementia with Lewy bodies. So sticking with inflammation, now we have cerebrospinal fluid S-TREM2 in Alzheimer's disease. Comparisons between clinical presentation and AT classification. This is the 15th paper by first author Napskog and last author Nielsen, published in Scientific Reports. So TREM2 is a popular protein in AD research since its identification in GWAS studies. It's an innate immune receptor found on microglia and to some extent on circulating immune cells as well. When it's cleaved, its soluble pieces can be measured in the CSF, and this has seen some success as a biomarker for symptomatic AD. Uniquely here, the authors used two outcome measures clinical symptoms, and amyloid and tau biomarkers to test whether soluble TREM2 levels in CSF could classify AD cases. Their study included 113 cases of MCI due to AD, 237 cases of AD, and 113 cognitively healthy controls. Ultimately, they found no significant difference between soluble TREM2 levels in patients compared to controls. Interestingly, though, the marker was increased when patients were positive for tauopathy, indicated by CSF levels of phosphorylated tau. This relationship was independent of cognitive status, amyloid, APOE4 genotype, and gender. The authors suggested that soluble TREM2 is mainly a marker of microglial activation connected to tauopathy. Next up, we have more on inflammation, with the 16th paper of the episode titled Interrelations of Alzheimer's Disease Candidate Biomarkers, neurogranin, fatty acid binding protein 3, and ferritin to neurodegeneration and neuroinflammation. This is by first author Brosserin and last author Henneke, published in Journal of Neurochemistry. Since inflammation and neurodegeneration are so intimately connected, this group wanted to test whether candidate biomarkers for AD had a relationship with markers of inflammation and established AD biomarkers. 
To do this, they used a total of 355 clinical CSF samples from a pool of cognitively healthy individuals, patients with MCI, or patients with other neurodegenerative diseases, including a subset with AD. Their candidate biomarkers of interest were ferritin, fatty acid binding protein 3, or FABP3, and neurogranin, but they also measured a panel of inflammatory markers as well as the core AD biomarkers in the CSF samples. They found that levels of ferritin, FABP3, and neurogranin were higher in patients with pathological levels of total tau, regardless of their amyloid status. They also found that markers correlated with each other, age, tau isoforms, and the panel of inflammatory markers measured. Check out the paper for the full list of inflammatory markers. Interestingly, they found that this relationship persisted even in patients who didn't have pathological levels of tau. With these data, the authors suggest that members of the inflammatory panel that they measured, including the familiar soluble TREM2 from the last paper, which associated with the candidate AD biomarkers of neurodegeneration, may be useful for detecting inflammation in the neurodegeneration phase of AD. More work is needed to unpack this, but check out the paper for some informative associations. Next up, we have another focus on neurogranin, which I kind of glossed over in the previous paper, but this one is called Neurogranin as a Novel Biomarker in Alzheimer's Disease. In our free bibliography, this will be the 17th paper of the episode, and it's by first author Agnello and last author Siasio, published in Laboratory Medicine. Here, the authors looked at two markers of synaptic damage as candidate AD CSF biomarkers, and these were neurogranin and alpha-synuclein. The study included 29 patients with AD and 59 patients with other neurological disorders, including tumors. They found significantly increased levels of both markers in CSF of AD patients, and that neurogranin could identify AD cases with an AUC of 0.872. They also found that neurogranin levels correlated with total tau, phosphorylated tau, and cognitive status in AD patients. Overall, this study supports the use of neurogranin as markers of synaptic damage in patients with AD, but of course, larger studies with more suitable control groups will be needed. On to another one that measured alpha-synuclein in the CSF. The 18th paper of this episode is called Differential Diagnostic Value of Total Alpha-Synuclein Assay in the Cerebral Spinal Fluid Between Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia with Lewy Bodies from the Prodromal Stage. This is by first author Bougies and last author Blanc, published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. So alpha-synuclein is a very common CSF biomarker for distinguishing AD from dementia with Lewy Bodies. Generally, patients with AD have higher CSF levels of alpha-synuclein compared to patients with Lewy body dementia. Not many studies have looked at this distinction in the MCI stage, though, and that's what this group aimed to do. The study included a comprehensive cohort of a total of 166 patients, either cognitively healthy controls with prodromal Lewy body dementia or prodromal AD, full-blown Lewy body dementia or full-blown AD, or a mix of the two pathologies. They measured CSF alpha-synuclein as well as the core AD biomarkers. As expected, the authors found increased CSF alpha-synuclein in AD patients compared to those with Lewy body dementia. Interestingly, this increase was also present in the prodromal, or MCI, stage. The AUC for alpha-synuclein distinguishing the two diseases was 0.78, but adding it to the core AD biomarkers didn't improve their discriminative capacity. While it's interesting that levels are altered during the MCI stage of these diseases, 
CSF alpha-synuclein didn't improve the distinction between AD and dementia with Lewy bodies when compared to just using the regular core AD biomarkers. For the 19th paper today, we have evaluation of the serum DKK1, tenacin C, oxidative stress markers levels, and WNT signaling pathway genes expression in patients with Alzheimer's disease. This is by first author Hassanzeda and last author Sadriad, published in Journal of Molecular Neuroscience. While this one was a small study, the results are pretty interesting. The group used 40 patients with AD and 40 age match controls to look at serum levels of DICOF1, or DKK1, tenacin C, or TNC, and other oxidative stress markers as AD biomarkers. You may recognize DKK1 from the August blood biomarkers episode, where I covered a paper identifying it as a promising blood biomarker. Here, the authors found that serum levels of DKK1, TNC, and other oxidative stress biomarkers were significantly higher in the AD group. The AUC for DKK1 was a very high 0.998, while the AUC for TNC was 0.989. Larger studies with more comprehensive samples are needed to validate this work, but these data suggest that DKK1 and TNC could be promising blood biomarkers for AD. So moving now into the overlap between vascular dementia and AD, the 20th paper of the episode is titled Increased Blood Base 1 Activity as a Potential Common Pathogenic Factor of Vascular Dementia and Late-Onset Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author Zuliani, and last author, Cervaletti, published in Scientific Reports. So more and more evidence suggests that vascular events come before amyloid deposition. One in vitro line of this evidence showed that BASE1, which is a key enzyme in making amyloid beta, is upregulated by damage to the cerebrovasculature. Other work also found that its activity is higher in the blood and brain of patients with late-onset AD. Here, the authors wanted to see whether this was the case in vascular dementia as well, providing another common thread for the two diseases. In their study, they measured base activity in the blood of 175 patients with AD, 40 patients with vascular dementia, 123 patients with mixed vascular and AD dementia, 56 with other types of dementia, and 204 healthy controls. As expected, they found that base 1 activity was significantly higher in AD cases, But this was also true in vascular and mixed AD vascular dementia patients. However, levels were not significantly higher in other types of dementia. AUC values were 0.77 for AD, 0.83 for vascular dementia, and 0.77 for mixed dementia. Overall, these are really interesting findings, reinforcing the idea that vascular dementia and AD are closely related even to the level of base 1 activity in the blood. So sticking with the vasculature, as it's highly relevant, the next paper is called Growth Differentiation Factor 15 and NT-Pro-BNP as Blood-Based Markers of Vascular Brain Injury and Dementia. This is the 21st paper today, and it's by first author McGrath and last author Seth Shadri, and it's published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. As some background, Growth Differentiation Factor 15, or GDF-15, is a protein made by damaged neurons, and it's also considered a marker of vascular stress. NT-pro-BNP is a marker for swollen ventricles, and both of these markers have been investigated as biomarkers for dementia with success, but this group wanted to evaluate them in a community-based rather than clinical cohort. 
Their longitudinal study design included roughly 1,600 participants from the Framingham Offspring Cohort, 131 of which developed dementia over the 11-year follow-up. They measured both markers and added this data to the already comprehensive dataset on the cohort. They found that higher levels of GDF15 in the blood was associated with increased risk of incident all-cause dementia and AD, while NT-proBNP was only associated with increased risk of all-cause dementia. They also found that increased levels of these markers were associated with white matter hyperintensities and poor cognitive performance in people over 60. These data suggest that both markers could be valuable in predicting incident dementia. The 22nd paper of this episode is called Proteasome Activity in the Plasma as a Novel Biomarker in Mild Cognitive Impairment with Chronic Tinnitus. This is by first author Yun and last author Ho Kim, published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. So chronic tinnitus is persistent ringing in the ears, and it's common in old age, but can also be a symptom of mild cognitive impairment. In the study that was capped off using clinical samples from patients with chronic tinnitus, the authors actually started in mice. Using the ABP-PS1 mouse model, they found that circulating proteasome activity was lower than in wild-type mice. Carrying this finding into clinical samples, they wanted to see whether circulating proteasome activity could tease out those with MCI in a group of patients over 50 years old with chronic tinnitus. They measured levels and activity of circulating proteasomes in 56 patients, and they also measured A-beta 40 and 42. They found that the activity of circulating proteasomes was significantly lower in patients who had MCI, and that this was dependent on levels of the circulating proteasomes. They also found that activity was negatively correlated with A-beta levels. The authors suggest that these data support the use of this novel biomarker for MCI diagnosis, but of course these findings should be validated in larger and more diverse cohorts. Next up is the only paper in this episode that was strictly done in an animal model, and it's called Plasma Leptin Reflects Progression of Neurofibrillary Pathology in Animal Model of Tauopathy. This is the 23rd paper today, by first author Scent and last author Philippic, published in Cellular and Molecular Neurobiology. This study used two different transgenic rat models of AD to further tease apart the relationship between obesity and AD. They focused on leptin, which is a hormone released by fat tissue that can inhibit hunger. Specifically, their study was looking for associations between levels of leptin in the blood, general metabolic status, and tau pathology in the transgenic rat models. They found that levels of leptin in plasma were significantly lower in animals with tau pathology compared to the wild-type controls, and that there was a strong and significant inverse correlation between neurofibrillary pathology and circulating leptin levels. The authors also suggest that leptin may be a good biomarker for AD, but this line of work will need to be explored in humans first. Next up, the 24th paper of this episode is titled An SPRI-Based Biosensor Pilot Study, Analysis of Multiple Circulating Extracellular Vesicles and Hippocampal Volume in Alzheimer's Disease. This is by first author Piccolini and last author Bedoni, published in a Journal of Pharmaceutical and Biomedical Analysis. If you listen to the first episode of September 2020 Fluid Biomarkers, or our biomarker episodes from previous months, you'll be familiar with extracellular vesicles gaining traction as carriers of informative biomarkers. 
Here, the authors tried out their new biosensor based on surface plasmon residence, or SPR, imaging that was designed to identify and profile brain-derived vesicles in the blood based on the cell type that they came from. In this pilot study, they used 10 AD patients and 10 healthy subjects to test out their technology. They found that there were considerable differences in the vesicles from each group, and notably that microglial extracellular vesicles had different cargo, and that lipid composition was different. Check out the paper for more info on specific differences, but this advanced technology sounds very interesting and promising. Now into our last three papers, which involve nucleic acids as diagnostic tools. First is the 25th paper of this episode, and it's called Lower DNA Methylation Levels in CPG Island Shores of CR1, CLU, and PCALM in the Blood of Japanese Alzheimer's Disease Patients. This is by first author Mitsumori and last author Shimoda, published in PLOS1. As you could probably guess from the title, this study focused on levels of DNA methylation in six of the top AD genetic risk genes in circulating leukocytes. Ultimately, the authors were trying to see whether methylation levels of these genes could be used as a diagnostic tool. The genes they focused on were APOE, BIN1, PCALM, CR1, CLU, and ABCA7. And their study sample was 293 participants, which they separated into a training and validation cohort. They used Sanger sequencing to look at methylation differences and found that methylation levels in CR1, CLU, and PCALM were significantly lower in AD patients. In terms of diagnostic value, they found that combining CLU methylation levels with APOE genotype had an AUC of 0.84 and 0.8 in the test and replication analyses. Overall, this is good proof-of-concept study for the use of DNA methylation levels for diagnostic purposes. Shifting gears now to microRNA, the 26th paper is called Performance of Validated MicroRNA Biomarkers for Alzheimer's Disease in Mild Cognitive Impairment. This is by first author Sando and last author Sogstad, and it's published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. MIRNA biomarkers in the CSF have been identified for AD. Check out some of our previous fluid biomarkers episodes for more on that. But these authors wanted to evaluate them in the context of mild cognitive impairment. Since it's so important to diagnose early for treatment interventions, this is an important step for MIRNA biomarkers. The group's cohort consisted of 133 participants who were either cognitively normal or were diagnosed with MCI or AD. They measured levels of 17 different validated miRNA biomarkers in CSF samples of these patients, and they found that five of them decreased from control to MCI to AD. A model combining these five miRNAs had an AUC of 0.770 for diagnosing AD and 0.705 for MCI. They also found that adding in the miRNA scores to A-beta-42 and total tau measures was able to improve the AUC for MCI from 0.758 to 0.813, and that the miRNAs only had a weak correlation with A-beta-42 and total tau. The authors suggest that there's value in adding these miRNAs to the biomarker repertoire since they may improve the classification performance of existing protein biomarkers for MCI. Check out the paper for more details on the exact miRNAs measured. Finally, we have our 27th and last paper of this episode. This one focuses on cell-free mitochondrial DNA, or mtDNA, 
and it's called Postmortem Ventricular Cerebral Spinal Fluid Cell-Free MTDNA in Neurodegenerative Disease. This is by first author Laus and last author Hudson, published in Scientific Reports. So lots of studies have linked levels of cell-free mtDNA to human disease, but it's been a puzzle to parse apart the differences in this marker between specific pathologies. This group wanted to shed light on just that, so they used a sample of 115 patients who had all different types of neurodegenerative diseases. They measured cell-free mtDNA in the ventricular CSF of the patients, and also compared these levels to known protein markers of neurodegeneration, synaptic vesicles, and mitochondrial integrity. Interestingly, they found that reduced levels of ventricular CSF mtDNA was a feature specific to Parkinson's disease, and it seemed to be consistent throughout the course of the disease. They also found that in very severe cases of neurodegenerative diseases across all types, there was increased mtDNA, but that its levels were not associated with protein markers of neurodegeneration. This suggests that the release of this mtDNA is more complex than just cell debris. The authors concluded that the utility of ventricular CSF cell-free mtDNA as a prognostic biomarker is limited, but that reduced levels are associated with Parkinson's disease. More work is certainly needed to figure out the process in which mtDNA is released, since it seems to be independent of neurodegeneration markers. Very cool stuff. And that's all for part two of Fluid Biomarkers in AD from September 2020. As always, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this content and want to be a part of our mission of making published findings useful and accessible to scientists, reach out to us. You can contact us on any of our social media or through email and let us know what you're interested in helping with. Could be sorting or summarizing abstracts, scripting and hosting episodes, advertising, or outreach. There's really a slot for any skill set with this big mission. A big thank you to the whole team for making this possible, and we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Bye for now.